Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It sometimes seems there are two types of people here in the Bay. Those who cannot stop talking about cryptocurrencies and their associated acronyms like NFTs and DAOs, and those of us who would prefer to forget that such things exist. But the truth is that the world of crypto has entered the realm of the unignorable. Even the federal government is now on the record as wanting and needing to develop a comprehensive strategy thanks to last week's cryptocurrency executive order. So come along with us as we check in on the world that began with Bitcoin's expansive vision and has somehow led celebrities to buy funny drawings of apes slash played a role in the geopolitics of the sanctions against Russia. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. President Joe Biden issued a long-awaited cryptocurrency executive order Wednesday directing federal agencies to study a wide range of issues, including protecting consumers and businesses, safeguarding national security, and preventing criminal activity. The order also includes a directive to study the possibility of creating a U.S. digital dollar, an idea that other countries like China, which already has government-backed tokens, have embraced. Biden's order comes as the crypto ecosystem of smart contracts, new corporate forms, and art projects continues to expand and diversify. So here to catch us up on the prevalence of crypto, its growing acceptance as a currency, and how it could be regulated, we have three guests who will join us for the hour. First, we've got Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast and author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. We also have Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin, and the inside story of the misfits and millionaires trying to reinvent money. Welcome, Nathaniel. Hello. Good morning. And Charlie Wartzel, contributing writer for The Atlantic Magazine and writer of the excellent Galaxy Brain newsletter. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about regulation, Nathaniel, I wanted to start with you. I I think we want to catch people up a little bit. And I do want to start with Bitcoin and maybe have you talk a little bit about what you see as the fundamental shift that Bitcoin opened up, enabled, (laughs) signaled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great place to start, because I think, you know, for all that we have daily news stories now about Bitcoin, probably most people do not have a a clear sense of how it actually works or what it does or why it's any different than what came before. 
Um, you know, we've we've long had digital money. I mean, all, all almost all of our money is digital. Um, you know, most dollars are, and we obviously have PayPal dollars. What Bitcoin did, and we could there's a long list of things that Bitcoin did, but I think at the most basic level, what it did was make it possible to hold money um, or hold value without relying on any third party, uh, any other institution, any government. It's, it's like um, the idea initially was digital cash. Now you can hold a $20 bill and your bank can't take that back from you. The government can't take that back from you. It wanted to move that idea of, of cash that you can hold yourself to the digital realm, which wasn't possible before. And so now we have these digital wallets and what Bitcoin makes possible is that you have this digital wallet that is sort of is, is yours alone and only you have access to it with your private key, your password. Um, though if your private key or password gets stolen, you those Bitcoin are gone. And we've seen a lot of stories about that. But this notion, it's 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 a, it seems it sort of sounds simple and maybe it doesn't sound that different. But this idea that you can hold something digitally yourself and prove ownership of it. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it is, you know, it sounds simple, but it actually has given rise to a whole, essentially a whole industry now. Yeah. Um, and that's and, where we, I think we'd start. Yeah. And Laura, you know, the means for doing this is a thing people call the blockchain. You spend a lot of time thinking about them. Uh, you know, you were covering them first as a, as a editor at Forbes and now uh, on your own and, and working on this book and thinking about, one in particular, Ethereum, right? Um, can you tell us sort of the relationship between Ethereum, the blockchain, and sort of the, the origins of this uh, crypto world? So Ethereum is the second largest crypto asset by market capitalization. And the creator, Vitalik Buterin, actually started as a Bitcoin journalist. He was a writer about Bitcoin for a now defunct publication called Bitcoin Weekly, and then later became a writer and then eventually an owner of Bitcoin Magazine. And he was roaming around the world, visiting with these different Bitcoin communities, and he saw people trying to innovate in a very specific way, which was that they were building new blockchains that had additional features to what, uh, to what Bitcoin had. And he thought, well, if you go about it that way, then each time someone comes out with a new blockchain with new features, that will just make the previous ones obsolete. And soon that one will be obsolete the next time there's a new one with additional features. And he thought, why can't it be more like an app store where any developer in the world can dream up an idea that would be similar to Bitcoin in that it would be decentralized, meaning there wouldn't be any single entity that manages it, but simply computers around the world that contribute in this decentralized fashion. But you know, beyond digital cash or digital gold, it could be you know, any idea that they might have similar to the way that the Apple App Store has, for instance, photography apps and cooking apps and productivity apps and financial apps. And so what he did was he created Ethereum to be built around a programming language. And that's why Ethereum now is this platform for a number of different kinds of decentralized applications, ranging from things like decentralized exchanges to 
um, what they call decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs or um, decentralized borrowing and lending protocols. Um, it's really a range. And, you know, like Nathaniel said, all of this is enabled because Ethereum is a blockchain similar to Bitcoin. And because it is a blockchain, it enables true digital ownership. Um, and, you know, as I said, with Ethereum, it's just beyond digital cash. And so now you kind of have, you know, all these other kinds of assets, whether it be for tickets to um, you know, NFT of NFT tickets to events or um, a domain name that ends in .eth, which is called um, basically it's an Ethereum domain name. And so there's just many, many different additional kinds of things that the Ethereum blockchain enables. Yeah, and we're gonna get to maybe some of the critiques of some of these concepts and other things. Just so if you're if you're sitting out there and you're sitting on your hands, going, wait, wait, hold on, um, I. We're going to get to to those things. Um, Charlotte, I want to ask you about a great interview you did with a guy named Aaron Lammer. Um, he described as a crypto true believer. And he, he said something to you about why he finds this topic interesting that really resonated with me as someone who loved the, the early World Wide Web. And that was, he said, crypto has been really exciting to me precisely because it's different from the rest of you know our, our current internet. How, how did he see it and maybe how do you see it as different or the same um, from the rest of our current internet? Yeah, what I, what I loved about that um, sort of uh, conversation with him is that it, it has mirrored a little bit of my experience. You know, I'm less of a historian of all of this as, as the other guests here, but, but speaking to it, you know, as someone who just pays a lot of attention to, you know, the industry of innovation. Uh, what I find really fascinating about, you know, about the the world of, of crypto and and Web three is is the fact that there is so much movement happening in this space. You know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at where talent is going uh, in the in the tech industry, and there's a lot of talent pouring into this. And you know, we can argue about you know the reasons why the talent's pouring in maybe it's just because it's where the money is but i also think that this kind of coincides and this is what aaron was saying in this interview with you know a, a period of stagnation i think in terms of you know what like internet innovation when we look at you know some of the major platforms they're all you know really maturing they're dealing with a lot of their own problems a lot of their uh you know regulation getting called before congress things like that and and, and, you know, when you, when you look at, um, you know, like the running joke about Facebook now is it just, you know, kind of takes products and, and features from other social networks and, and, you know, kind of recreates them and runs through that. And that's sort of, you know, their, their big moment of, of innovation. When you look at what is going on in, in the crypto space, there is this, this real sort of energy there and this feeling of we are going to we're actually going to build new things, try to create new digital paradigms, you know, for not, not only finance, but for, you know, uh, governance and organizations, you know, it, it, it goes into the art world, into the world of gaming. Um, and whether or not you, you agree or, or think that this is, you know, a, some, something that that's, that's going to last, or you think it's a, you know, all a big Ponzi scheme, there is so much movement and energy in this mm -hmm. space that I think it draws people like Aaron who, 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 you know, who feed off that energy into the industry. I mean, part of it is, right, the reaction to the platform era that we've been in when so much of the activity that we do on the Internet is just confined to, you know, a handful of, of big corporate players, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is this this general feeling of consolidation of um, you know of of big platforms being sort of governed by the whims of one or two people and and the you know the worries about about that consolidation of power and and I think that 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 drives you know some of some of the people in this world to to want to create that sort of decentralization I think the the big question is obviously whether or not uh you know that decentralization is is actually possible or whether we're going to kind of you know recreate that paradigm uh in in a quote-unquote decentralized world yeah we're talking about cryptocurrencies and your questions about Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, new regulations that the Biden administration is working on with Charlie Wartzel, contributing writer at The Atlantic Magazine, writer of the Galaxy Brain newsletter, Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin, and the inside story of the misfits and millionaires trying to reinvent money, and Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast and author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big cryptocurrency craze. We know a lot of people have a lot of thoughts about crypto, and we do want to hear from you. First, do you own cryptocurrency? Have you bought an NFT? Like, what got you interested in this world? Um, Two, and I'm really interested in this one, are you someone who found yourself surprised that you're excited about crypto? Like, you weren't interested in social media, or you weren't interested in other new developments on the internet, but crypto really caught your eye, or vice versa. I've met a lot of people like this, longtime technologists who do, who aren't interested in crypto for one reason or another. We'd love to hear from you. Number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're KQED Forum. And of course, the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're talking crypto. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about crypto with Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast and author of The Cryptopians, Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, and Charlie Wartzel, contributing writer at The Atlantic and writer of the Galaxy Brain newsletter. And we do want to hear from you. Are you someone who's found yourself surprised how interested you are in crypto or vice versa? Longtime technologist who 
doesn't like crypto, give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're not just talking currencies either. We're talking the whole ecosystem. You can touch Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, Laura, before the break, Charlie was talking about the maturation of the technology industry, the big tech companies. But there's also been some maturation in the crypto space. And one of those things is trying to figure out, at least in the U.S., what this government regulation is going to look like. And we do have this Joe Biden executive order that has now come out. Um, What was the reaction to it among the people that you know in this space? Crypto people, by and large, seemed to think that it was pretty reasonable and nothing to be alarmed about. And I think they felt that this was actually something that was necessary to have the government have a coherent strategy that was coordinated across agencies and not something that was ad hoc, which is what their experience has been. And it's been, I think, very confusing and um, really anxiety producing for a lot of the entrepreneurs in this space. Um, you know, one other thing is I was listening to a, a popular crypto podcast called The Breakdown, and that host noted that of the six points, three were kind of focused in, on the risks, and then three were focused on the opportunities for innovation. And so um, in that sense, it sort of seemed balanced. However, I did notice a tweet thread from a former CFTC commissioner, Brian Quintens, who said that he did a quick word search of the executive order. And he noted that the word risk appears 47 times (laughs) and the word innovation 12 times and benefit six times, opportunity four times, et cetera. And so you know, I mean, obviously he's a former regulator. So um, <laughs> this critique uh, was uh, just coming from someone who, you know, was not so recently in government himself, but now he works for Andreessen Horowitz Crypto. And so has definitely gone over to the crypto side. Mm-hmm. But in general, I don't think the community was alarmed. And in fact, they actually welcomed this mm-hmm. executive order. Hey, Nathaniel, what are the big issues that the Biden administration seems like they want to address or that you know, from your research, seem like they should be addressed? Mm -hmm. Well, um, look, this whole universe, in in a sense, Bitcoin got going because of illegal activity. Um, This was uh, something, you know, Bitcoin sort of existed for the first two years and nobody could figure out what to do with it. It wasn't really worth anything. The people who were running it were a bunch of sort of computer nerds who were interested in the project, but it wasn't worth anything. And they actually, even then, started talking about, you know, the obvious use of a money that has that, that you know, has no central institution is um, stuff that central institutions want to stop, uh, such as uh drug purchasing, uh, drug markets, black markets, all of this kind of thing. And so you got going the Silk Road, uh, you know, the famous online black market was the first sort of real use case for Bitcoin. And, you know, this place where you could initially buy mushrooms and marijuana and it got a lot bigger from there. So you so you had a legal activity there from the beginning. And it was sort of how how Bitcoin showed that it worked. 
because mm-hmm. you could do an illegal transaction. Now, over time, that has just proliferated. And, and the latest, I think, issue that everybody's thinking about, and really what I think sparked the interest of the Biden administration here was Russia and you know the war in Ukraine and um, the fact that Russia is looking or thinking about using Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin to evade sanctions. And so that's sort of the highest level concern. But, you know, you have all these things underneath it, like ransomware and um, obviously still still drugs. You have, you, have, uh, you know, uh, money laundering, tax evasion. So these are all the things that I think, um, you know, on the risk side of the ledger, everybody wants to, to uh, take care of and particularly the Biden administration. And, and part of what's interesting here is that despite all of those risks, the U.S. government has not tried to shut this down in the way that, um, for instance, the Chinese government has. So, um, you know, the, the U.S. government is trying to deal with those risks, uh, you know, and it's really a wide array of them, um, but it seems committed to, to sort of letting this industry continue to um, uh, survive, you know, try to try to move ahead, try to become the sort of center of this whole global, new global universe surrounding cryptocurrencies yeah. and blockchains. Let's bring in our first caller, Stephanie from San Leandro, who wants to ask about another um, central concern of governments. Go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, my question is, how are investments in cryptocurrency taxed? Um, can you collect tax on them, and how would that be done? And then secondly, if you were to send some cryptocurrency to Ukraine to help um, in their fight with Russia, how is that different from sending a wire transfer? Are there advantages or disadvantages to that? Uh, Lord, let's uh, have you take a crack at this one on the tax thing first. So cryptocurrency is taxed the way that um, like long-term or short-term investments are like stocks. And um, this is why a lot of people feel, or a lot of crypto people would say that this has sort of dampened the usage of crypto for payments, because obviously if you're going to have to calculate your long or short-term capital gains on every purchase of coffee or whatever it is that you're buying, then that might deter you. Um, But, you know, in terms of maybe like uh, part of your question might be about whether or not people can evade taxes for that, um, that obviously has been a concern. I do know that um, a number of the exchanges will try uh, as best as they can to give you information that you might be able to use for your taxes. However, um, because people transfer their money around and uh, uh, something called cost basis, which is the purchase price of the coins that you um, that you bought, uh, since that's used to calculate your taxes, um, if you did not buy your coins at that exchange and bought them elsewhere, then you have to figure that out. And so there's a lot of tax software and tax crypto tax firms that have kind of popped up to help people with this. And frankly, um, as far as I understand, I think most people who transact in crypto need both. They need both the software as well as a human who's familiar with this area in order to manage it all uh, properly. You know, Nathaniel, I wanted to, you wrote about finance and technology for the New York Times. And I did want to ask you one question about sort of the, in in general, in the U.S., uh, the regulation of financial markets, in some cases, has actually been quite helpful for those markets to grow. I mean, you can think about um, mortgages, uh, 
you know, throughout the 20th century for, for good and for ill. The, the kind of regulations that were put in place uh, helped to sustain the, the mortgage market. Is there any sense that having regulations in place would actually help these crypto uh, economies like make more sense to people and perhaps draw investment to them? Absolutely. I think, you know, people are still put off generally by cryptocurrency technology. I think broadly, most people are still afraid of this. It feels like this wild west where your money might just disappear. Um, and that has that has been the case through much of the history of this whole universe. You know, uh, the, the biggest exchange for the first five years, uh, this place called Mt. Gox, one day kind of woke up and said, I can't find the the billion dollars worth of bitcoin we had um and you know that was i think a a formative experience for many with 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 bitcoin hearing about that um and so the notion that you now have an industry that is starting to get more mature you have companies like coinbase in the united states that is now a public company that you know answers to regulators it, that makes people feel a lot more comfortable uh, putting their money in there. And I think that's been a big part of why Americans over time have been willing to. Now, you know, with regulations, I think part of what always happens with regulations is that, uh, you know, the, the unintended side effect of regulations is often that it helps the big players that already exist. So somebody like Coinbase um, that, that has lawyers on hand to deal with regulators, I think regulations are going to help them. Generally, uh, the feeling is that, you know, some small upstart, um, it, the more regulations there are, they're not going to have the lawyers on hand to figure that out. So you might get less in the way of sort of new innovation, new upstarts. Now, I think crypto and uh, this, this whole industry has managed to kind of uh, uh, exist outside of that, you know, get out, uh, get out of that normal paradigm a little bit because, um, because it can sort of exist anywhere because of the sort of decentralized nature, which again, we could sort of come back to discuss, you know, how true or not that is. Um, people really do just start things often in the wilderness, often they're anonymous. Um, you know, that that's another thing that this technology makes possible is that, you know, people can create something without anybody knowing who created it. People can send money without anybody knowing who sent it. And so that makes a whole new type of innovation possible that isn't no normally possible in the sort of startup ecosystem. Um, but I think regulations do generally um, bring people into this industry rather than keep them out. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Bonnie from Santa Rosa. Welcome. Hi. So my question basically is, uh, how does this make the world a better place? You know, uh, Facebook started and they were going to bring people together and that didn't work out so great. Uber and Lyft were going to put things in the hands of the regular people. Didn't work out all that well for the regular people. So this, uh, you know, how does this really, how does this really help people? I mean, it, it looks to me like a highly arcane version of the stock market. <laughs> Thanks for that perspective, Bonnie. Charlie, what do you think? You've watched over time the technology industry that, you know, in exactly the way that Bonnie was describing, sort of make a lot of promises about how the world would be a better place as a result of these various companies' actions and have also reported on a lot of the, the problems. So uh, what do you think? <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Um, no, I, 
you know, I think this is this is where there's there's a real um, division between you know the crypto and Web three boosters and 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 the skeptics. And I think that um, I I think that the skeptics have an, an extremely good point. I would count myself um, uh, among the skeptics at this at this moment in time. Um, you know, I think I think a big issue. Um, that that a lot of skeptics have is is the notion that this sort of this new decentralized vision of you know the internet this whole framing of a lot of a lot of crypto as web 3 the third sort of iteration of of the internet and its infrastructure um is that's being promoted by a lot of the people who were instrumental in creating you know the social version the social web or the web 2 um and and that there's this this idea there's um, there's a researcher at uh, University of Oxford's Institute for Ethics Elizabeth uh, Renaris, and she used this uh, term of imaginative obsolescence and this idea that um, you know we're we're constantly sort of building out systems and declaring them the next new paradigm and then immediately once they kind of, you know, latch on looking for the next thing uh, and declaring that the new paradigm. And, and there's this idea that what we're, what a lot of these people might be doing is, is, is sort of building and building without repairing what exists right now. And what has, you know, sort of achieved, um, you know, a, a critical mass. And, and I think that's what we're seeing, right? We're at this moment um, with a lot of the major platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, um, you know, TikTok. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of, you know, issues with, you know, the way information travels, misinformation, um, just simply the way that they're having, you know, large effects on our politics. And rather than, you know, spending lots of, of time on that, on that governance and sort of understanding and, and regulating them where there are a lot of people pivoting to this, you know, this next version where we won't have all those same problems because, you know, we, we won't need to have, uh, you know, we won't have to rely on these intermediaries and, and these platforms will have a little less power. Um, you know, there's a vision of that that's, that's, that's hopeful, but, but you know, I, I think that sort of imaginative obsolescence is is a real problem, and and that you know, there's an industry that's not focused enough on this idea of of repairing what exists. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, the institutions won't be bad because there won't be any institutions. Um, I do, uh, Laura. I want to ask you about the book. We have a bunch of comments coming in um, on the environmental issues associated with crypto. Um, Pete writes. How might crypto benefit natural ecosystems? Would that be outweighed by carbon emissions and the waste heat from the mining, that is to say, uh, the work done to create the, the blockchain? Noel tweets, it isn't powered by magic. It needs huge amounts of electricity to run it. How can you care about a climate catastrophe looming when we are wasting electricity on the servers powering cryptocurrencies? There are shiny new speculative instruments for people with money to burn. And Ernst writes, the only story about crypto is how much energy it wastes. Without that discussion, any other discussion is meaningless. How are people addressing these, for people who want to do crypto, right? For people who just think like, this is dumb, shut it down, let's not use this electricity. For people who want to do crypto, how are they trying to address um, these environmental concerns? So first of all, when people talk about environmental concerns regarding all of crypto, um, it's actually more nuanced than that because it's really the so-called proof-of-work blockchains that um, use electricity as part of 
the way that they keep the network in what they call consensus, meaning all the different nodes will agree on the state of the ledger. But there are other more environmentally friendly ways of keeping consensus, such as proof of stake. And I would say that the majority of blockchains um, either are shifting or already have shifted with Ethereum, um, the you know, second largest blockchain, as we mentioned before, shifting to proof of stake later this year, most likely. I think June is kind of the the date that I'm hearing nowadays, although it could be pushed, it keeps getting pushed. Um, And uh, so then within that, if we're just going to look at the proof of work blockchains, which primarily when we talk about that, we're really looking at Bitcoin because that's obviously the biggest blockchain. Um, You know, it has just the greatest adoption, the biggest brand uh, name recognition. And um, for that, a lot of people have been working on some innovative solutions, one of them being really interesting to me, which is that they talk about how a lot of the renewable energy generators are in places that don't necessarily have high demand. And yet, the, and for that reason, they kind of struggle um, financially. And so there was a paper put out by Square, now known as Block, as well as Kathy Wood's ARC Investment, where they said, well, actually, if you attach a Bitcoin miner there, then it helps even out the revenues for those renewable energy plants. And they can easily shut the miner down at whim whenever their energy is needed, um, you know, to to power the grid. And so I do think um, there are some places that are moving toward that. I actually recently interviewed a company. Theirs is different because what they're doing is they're taking excess natural gas and um, pairing that with Bitcoin miners, um, again, for environmental reasons. Um, And then the last thing I would say about this is that there are a number of projects that are using crypto tokens or or attempting to, you know, I don't think they've gotten off the ground quite yet, but I know that they're trying to use crypto tokens as a way to um, kind of you know, manage emissions or maybe trade carbon carbon credits or yeah, yeah, that kind of thing to, to create a market, um, around, uh, you know, people working toward reduced greenhouse gases. We're talking about crypto and the blockchain with Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin, and the Inside Story of the Misfits and Millionaires Trying to Reinvent Money. And Charlie Wartzel, contributing writer at The Atlantic and creator of the Galaxy Brain podcast. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after this short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to try and get to as many of your comments and uh, calls as we can here. And let's uh, bring in, we're talking crypto, of course, let's bring in David from Kensington. Welcome, David. Thank you. Um, really, what I'd like to do is pass on a kind of a question comment posed by Warren Buffett. I'll do the best I can to accomplish that. <laughs> Basically, if I understand him correctly, Buffett is suggesting that blockchain technology is potent and promising, that it has the possibility of substantially reducing frictional fees or frictional costs in financial transactions. On the other hand, he says crypto itself is going to, quote, end badly, and he repeated that over and over. His point is that all the young people I'm seeing who think they're going to get rich buying um, Bitcoin, because Kathy Wood says so, um, are really playing the greater fool game. They're buying a product that only has the potential of increased value if there's somebody willing to pay more for it than they are. It doesn't have value based on earning power the way, contrary to what an earlier uh, questioner said, stocks do. Stocks produce dividends. Stocks are in interest in a company which produces a product which it sells. Crypto doesn't do that. So I'd, I'd like two things. I'd like um, your wonderful panel to, A, more clearly define the difference between blockchain and crypto itself and to respond to Warren's uh, warning about the yeah. fool's game. Sure. Okay. Hey, thank you so much, David. Really appreciate that. Uh, Nathaniel Popper, how about you? Those are great questions. Boy, uh, and not 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 simple ones. Um, I, I actually start with the the Warren Buffett question, and maybe Lex, you can remind me the other question once I if if I get through that. Sure. Um, but um, the Warren Buffett question. I mean, on on this idea that Bitcoin or or crypto is in some sense a Ponzi scheme. You know that that it just relies on getting new people in and getting out before um, before it it goes down. Well, I think that on the one hand, what Bitcoin has has taught us um, or what it has reminded us is that a lot of a surprising amount of the economy and the assets we rely on are sort of Ponzi like. Um, So, you know, even the dollar, you know, a lot of people think is um, a lot of people sort of still have it in their mind that it's backed by something, you know, backed by gold (laughs) as it was for a long time. You know, the dollar is worth something because we all imagine that it it will continue to be worth something tomorrow. Now, of course, the U.S. government says they will take it for taxes. That is very valuable, but it doesn't. Well, have and any... that there's like an incredibly deep and liquid market for all the dollar backed things, right? I mean, there are. Well, it's no, not it's... just that, right? It's that there's this enormous, you know, It's a point that's easily overstated. I I agree with you. Um, but but in, in, I guess it, I guess the the, the point being that we a lot of things we we ascribe value to them and, and because we have collectively agreed that they are valuable. Now the, there's a there's a second layer question, which is, is there any value in the way that a company has value? So I mean, a lot of stocks, like yes, if you get a dividend from a stock, you're getting something from that. A lot of stocks don't have dividends. You just own a piece of a company and the value 
today of many stocks is largely speculative. It's not because people are getting dividends, although that you know that used that's there. But with Bitcoin, um, it's not that you own. You, it's not that you have a stake in some. Um, it's not that you have a stake in some company or ongoing. Um, well, let, let's say it's not because you have a stake in some company. What you do have is a stake in this network, the Bitcoin network, which has um, you know 21 million Bitcoin. So there's a scarce number of sort of owners of this network at any time. And really, the question is, does that network have any value? You know, in the way that a company does. And I guess the, the one easy way to think about this is why does visa have value right visa processes transactions all they do is just move money around um, and they collect a fee on each on each transaction that's in some sense at the simplest level what bitcoin is doing now visa is worth something as a public company you want to own a stake in it um, because allowing transactions allowing new kinds of economic activity can create you know, economic growth. I mean, you know, the, the, the advent of credit cards has made it much more easy for people to spend money in different scenarios and different circumstances. And that has allowed for new economic activity. Now, so and this also gets to the question of social good. Now, I am I don't want to be put in the position of sort of an advocate of this technology. I'm, I'm as, you know, critical and skeptical as anybody. But I think it's worth recognizing that there is new kinds of economic activity here beyond just the speculation. A big part of it is still speculation. I would argue a big part of stock market is still of, of the stock market and the value of stocks is speculation. But you have to look at the fact that there is also new kinds of economic activity going on here. Now, I'm not going to I won't I won't. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. And I, I about I, blockchain, but I think the blockchain question gets gets us closer to that question of like, what is the economic activity? You know, what is the new stuff going on that might be valuable, that might allow new kinds of things? But I think thinking about a Visa or an American Express and like, what what is the value? What did they do? You know, what did the advent of those technologies? Uh, you, know, you you remember when, when those came about, there were a lot of old, you don't, I'm not pretending like you're an old man. <laughs> I don't remember it. this. I have but, researched but, it. Yeah. You know, the, the guys who are just like, yeah. I'm just going to have my wad of, uh, you know, 20s and $100 bills. And why do I need a credit card? Travelers. There are checks, reasons right? you do. <laughs> right. right. And so this is there's there's something, you know, and, and that's not all that Bitcoin is, but that's a good way to start thinking about the, the sort of utility of this. Yeah. And I, I, I want to just dial it on the two points from what you said uh, in answer to David's question. I mean, one is the big technology companies basically no longer trade in a way that makes sense from a traditional earnings dividend kind of valuation perspective. <laughs> like they've they've been untethered from that for for yeah. quite some time. And you know, I, I'm not sure what to say about that aside from clearly people are buying them for something other than the amount of money they'll mm -hmm. uh, be returned in that sort of traditional valuation sense. Um, the second is I think that your point about it's kind of doing the work of finance, whether finance should be, uh, you know, valued in the way that it is and people paid in finance in the way that they are is another question. But it certainly does strike me. And Lord, I, I want to come to you on this, that that the blockchain and these this layer of technologies is doing a lot of this work that previously had been done inside various kinds of financial institutions, which people aren't very familiar with, generally speaking, and also 
you know, has become kind of seamless for most consumer purposes, at least. So they don't even see the work that's going into making all that money run. Yeah, I mean, that's actually because I, I wanted to add on to Nathaniel's comments. And that is a point that I wanted to make that. Um, so these blockchain networks are different from companies because they're user owned networks. Meaning instead of you having this company with a C-suite and a board and these shareholders and you know certain people have huge amounts in the cap table, now these user-owned networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum or what have you, um, they enable the owners of the tokens to have a stake in the network and they can be for any purpose and it doesn't have to necessarily be financial. There are some, for instance, where the purpose of the decentralized network is to provide file storage. And so you can kind of make a comparison to something like AWS or Dropbox in order to figure out, oh, so what might the value of a decentralized file storage network be? And then based on that, you know, try to own some portion of it and contribute to it. And there are people that are contributing to this network. They are, you know, uploading their file storage or they're, um, you know, using the decentralized file storage and paying less than they would to a centralized service. Or there's even a decentralized version of what's called a video transcoding network where, um, I don't know, it's some technical thing that needs to be done to videos that get uploaded to the internet. Right. And I interviewed, yeah, a, a, you know, a company where they were going to start off as like a centralized version and then they decided to go the decentralized way and now they're incentivized by these tokens. And so um, it's not only financial and yeah, these are all things that centralized companies normally do in the web two version of the internet, but in web three, it's going to be user owned. You know, uh, Charlie Wartzel, we've been getting a lot of questions here. Uh, people saying crypto is for elites, basically. This is going to be the realm of illegal activity and the digital elite, the 2% of people who can understand this stuff. There's nothing wrong with our current system of dollars. Ashley writes, I really hate how crypto has become the new thing that rich people are pushing on poor people and working people as a scheme to get rich. Let's be honest, the ultra-rich don't know what else to do with their actual money, so they created a new one and are trying to push it on the rest of us so they can hoard that too. Merrily writes, thanks for doing this. It's totally confusing to me, and I came out of the computer industry but left in the mid-90s. Crypto seems like another means to get money from the middle and lower classes and move it upward. Do you think that is a fair critique, Charlie? Uh, partly, uh, I, I mean, I think that there is there there. <laughs> when you look at just in general the sort of like memification of a lot of finance and sort of the you know the democratization of it through um, you know through like trading apps and companies like Robinhood, um, I, I think you do have this this. Um, this influx of of people who you know normally didn't have access to uh you know to the financial system in in, in that way or or maybe not the direct access um and, and it's the same thing i think for um you know for for certain crypto assets and crypto projects and i think that there's an element of that that is you know the sort of more utopian mindset which is you know we are democratizing this we're giving people more access um and that that should be a good thing i think that there's also a way in which you know that can be um uh, maybe predatory is the wrong word, but there is a way in which that can that can be very exploitative to certain people who are coming in, who are you know trading on on the margins, uh, and and who you know who feel a little bit like uh, like they've been left out of these systems, and 
Um, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people who feel that people are, are, who, who come into this, who, you know, who don't have tons of money and, and don't have the ability to like really buy into these things that, and maybe don't have, you know, the, the financial just knowledge of, of how, of how these markets operate. Um, you know, they're going to fall victim to either schemes or, uh, rug pull scams or, or, or simply just, you know, get kind of taken advantage of by the, the natural ebb and flow of the markets. So I think that that, you know, that kind of highlights, uh, a, a real problem here. Um, but, you know, I, I would add that I think what what worries me a little bit about, um, you know, a, a, about the crypto ecosystem, Laura had a, had, a, had a great point of, you know, some a lot of these projects aren't, or some of these projects aren't about, you know, financialization, and they are about things like file sharing or video encoding. And there's, there's tons of other examples of, of interesting projects like this. And I think that those might be sort of the, the most earnest uses of, yeah. of this technology. But I think also that, you know, there is a, one There's sec, Charlie. One sec, Charlie. Um, this is fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and you can keep going, Charlie. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, the, the the last point I would make is I think that there's there's a financialized and over financialized element to a lot of crypto projects, you know, this idea of the tokenization of kind of everything right on the internet that kind of feels to increase speculation in my mind. It, you know, anything can kind of be turned into an asset. And that kind of worries me, you know, when I look back on, you know, the the financial crisis and and a lot of the, you know, the the over leverage and, and securitization and, and, and packaging of derivatives and things like that. You know that was a that was an over financialization of uh, of an industry that you know ended up forcing its collapse, and I just I it worries me that you know some of these projects tend to trend into that world, and you know the people who usually uh, get left flat footed there are the ones who have you know the, the least. Yeah, let's bring in one last caller, uh, Michelle from Oakland. Hi, uh, my name is Michelle Neat, and I'm a professor teaching blockchain law in San Francisco at GGU Law. And I just want to follow up on that point. There are so many use cases for blockchain beyond crypto. We've actually started the Blockchain Law for Social Goods Center, which is the first of its kind in an American law school, to share these stories of blockchain being used by the city of Berkeley for microbond projects and blockchain being used in England to track vaccine distribution. There's so much more to this technology than than just crypto or just financial applications. And so I really encourage folks to get and lawmakers especially to get a 360 degree view of this new, exciting technology. Thank you. Thanks so much. You know, Laura Shin, do you see those projects like those social good projects you know, in the in the old days of Web2 technology, you know, there would be kind of like the main engine of Facebook, which is, you know, selling uh, access to its users. Um, and then there would be kind of their social good stuff that would be kind of like the frosting on the top. Do you see these social good projects actually having like a central role in this the blockchain ecosystems out there? You know, it's so funny because I, you know, obviously I have my podcast and um, for all the talk of kind of democratizing finance and stuff, I sometimes feel like, oh, you know, a lot of what's going on is just people 
uh, basically, you know, trying to get rich. Um, however, I think that something that we've seen very recently, which does show um, the power of this for um, of this technology to be used for social causes is in the fact that Ukraine has raised um, what one minister estimates to be $100 million as of, I think last week is when I saw the estimate of $100 million via crypto donations from just around the globe is really incredible, something we've never seen before in history. And I think that, you know, uh, just when you have... Uh, this way for people to be able to send that money easily, um, you know, literally with just the click of a button, the, the minister was saying, oh, you know, this wouldn't really be possible with SWIFT, especially with this level of speed. And um, so I think that, you know, we're kind of seeing in real time that there are new uh, uses for this. And I do know of, you know, a few other different projects that are um, you know, kind of doing that, such as something called Gitcoin, where they fund public goods. And that's a really fascinating project because they recognize that the way, so the way the voting works is via tokens. And so they recognize that obviously whales or the people who have lots of tokens can strongly influence the vote. So they use a method called quadratic voting, which I know is a scary term, but mm -hmm. all it means is that they give more weight to any vote or any proposal that receives um, tokens from a large number of participants, and then they give less weight to a proposal that receives um, a large number of tokens, but from fewer entities. And so, um, you know, this this is a, a project where when when I say public goods, they're funding things, you know, ranging from like journalism to open source development and, you know, all kinds of other public goods. And so we, you know, we're definitely seeing people take an interest in that uh, in crypto, and I'm sure we'll see more of it in the future. We've been talking about cryptocurrencies, your questions about Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. So sorry we didn't get to Mark, Madsu, and Lynn, Rachel. Wanted to, wanted to take your calls. There were a lot today. Uh, obviously, more we can talk about here. We've been joined by Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast and author of The Cryptopians. Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold. And Charlie Wartzel, contributing writer at The Atlantic and writer of the Galaxy Brain newsletter. Thanks so much to all three of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. It was super fun. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.